All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Creative Gourd, Brother Mix. We got a special treat in store for everyone. I don't think they know. I don't think they're ready. I don't know. Uh, shucks. I can't wait. I can't <laughs> wait. So for those who do not know, let me inform you thusly. We have the honor and the privilege of being joined by one of our brothers and Petty alum as well, Brother Sangu Delhi. Now, Sangu ha- comes from Ghana and has done such amazing things. But one of the most amazing things that he has done, besides this being Sangu, right? This book right here. I, I cannot wait to dive into this. That's what I'll talk about. By the way, the uh, link is in the description for everyone. And I just wanted to, for those who don't know Sangu, I thought this was a very, so Sangu, if you're watching, this is, this is an amazing idea right here. I'm definitely gonna borrow this for my book as well. On the, on the first page, right? Sangu is a managing director of Africa Health Holdings focused on building Africa's healthcare future. A chairman of Golden Palm Investments Corporation, an African venture capital firm. GPIC portfolio companies have raised over $500 million in the last five years. This man is motivated. I appreciate it. I'm inspired, as you should be as well. I'll continue reading. Mr. Delhi has been named Africa's Young Person of the Year, a TED fellow. Now, for those who don't know what that is, a TED fellow means that you are part of the TED organization, just like TEDx. And Sangu has, I believe, two TED TED Talks, maybe even three, possibly four by the end of the year. You you never know. So it's it's Sangu. Sangu is a trustee of the Petty School, our alma mater, which is dope, on the advisory board, member of Harvard's University's Center of African Studies and a member of Harvard Medical School's Global Health Advisory Council. Sangu graduated with a BA, a JD, and an MBA from Harvard University. Brother Sangu, we appreciate you. (laughs) How are you? I am doing great. I am doing great. It's good to see you all. Um, I think the last time we were all together in Petty, I don't think we had beers. No. (laughs) (laughs) That's facts. (laughs) Absolutely. It's good to see you, brother, man. It's good to see you. It's great, great to see you all. Um, uh, uh, You know, I'm streaming live from Ghana. Mm. Very cool. Okay. And how are things over there, if you don't mind just asking? Yeah, so... You know, you know, COVID is affecting everyone. Um, things have been mixed. Um, in the beginning, I think we took some very strong measures, closing the border, um, you know, uh, shelter at home orders and so on and so forth. Um, and so we're a population of 30 million people, uh, probably geographically the size of Oregon. Um, to date, we have about 16, a little over 16,000 cases um, and sh- just a bit over 100 deaths. So, you know, one benefit, of course, is mortality rate is not that high. But the concern, though, is, you know, we, we probably have no more than two ventilators per one million people. Mm. Wow. So we can't 
afford for the, you know, when we talk about flattening the curve, we can't, we can't afford to have a curve. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, th th there's still a lot more work to be done to make sure that we ensure that curve doesn't, you know, that, that the rise is, is, is reined in. Um, and so, so emphasizing wear a mask, mm -hmm. you know, everyone needs to wear a mask um and uh and washing hands and using hand sanitizers and all that stuff we're, we're really trying to promote that but we're living through 20 you know 20 it's i was telling a friend the other day that um it feels like it was three years ago that kobe died yet mm. it was this year mm -hmm. that kobe died mm -hmm. <laughs> right mm -hmm. Like 2020 has just been one of those insane years. Um, and I was reading the news today that um, there's fears of a new virus in China. Mm. And yes. we're not even halfway through the year. Yes, puts a lot of stuff in perspective. <laughs> yeah. So, how are you guys doing? Oh, go ahead, Brother Mix. Um, you know, uh, trying to do as well as possible, taking everything one day at a time, um, trying to make sure we do our best to help people stay safe as well as protect our own health. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that folks might say, oh, I don't feel like doing this. This doesn't make sense. Um, but if it's going to save lives, particularly mine and those who are in my community and my loved ones, um, as well as strangers, then I'm going to take whatever necessary precautions I need to take. Um, so I've been doing that. I've been making sure that I'm not out and about. I mean, I know places are starting to open up more so, but I'm not I'm not out there in them streets. Not me. I'm still moving the same way I've been moving. So I'm just making sure that, you know, uh, I do my part to help uh, control this thing. And so folks even have a little bit more of an idea of what's actually happening. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And, you know, like like I feel I feel like there's a there's a joint collaborative effort to keep those who Josh, are most I can't hear you. I think you're mute. Wait, Mix, you can you hear me? I can hear you. Huh. Okay. Wait, Sango, can you hear me now? Interesting. I can't hear Josh. How about now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me, Goo? I can hear you perfectly. You can hear okay. me, okay, but all right. Interesting. Hmm. All right, I'm gonna try to like this remove you from the stream in the back in the backstage area. Yeah. He said he's trying. He said he's trying to go. He's gonna try to remove you from the back end um, of the stream and then try to work some things out. Okay. Can you hear me now? Interesting. And Mix, you can hear me. I can hear you. I can hear you, and I, and I think Sangu can hear me too. Can you ask Sangu, yeah. Sangu to if he could uh, exit the stream and then sign back in like the same way? Are you able to exit the stream and then sign back in the same way? Okay. Let me try Let me try. All right. Yeah. Appreciate the patience, everyone. Hope everyone else doing well out there. We have yeah. some appreciation of ours. <laughs> <laughs> As always, right? 
For real, for real. And I, I guess while as as we're waiting, um, you know, I don't want to give up, give away what we're talking about, but it's already written in the description. So if folks want to start generating their thoughts and populating the comments um, with what wealth means to you, please. What wealth. What does wealth mean to you? And then when we talk about connecting, what does connectivity look like to you? Um, so if you want to start populating the chat or at least getting your thoughts together, so when we get to that point of the conversation, uh, we can we can really dig in. Absolutely. And Sangu, can you hear me now? Yes. There we go. Oh, yeah. So I'll just do a a quick recap. Just, you know, taking it one, you know, one mask at a time, one day at a time, you know, one pair of gloves at a time. And we don't want to keep those who, let's say, who are who are most at risk. We don't want to keep them, let's say, in the public. I think they should be the ones sheltering in place because it'll it'll make everyone's uh, it will make the world flow a lot. I would say a lot easier because right now the everyone I feel like is a little bit of is a little bit over dramatic. And as we see, there are a lot of uh, billionaires who have made some money from this progress. So to me, I just feel like it's a uh, they're creating an industry out of an industry. And, I'm you know, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but we also don't want to make sure that the whole Black Lives Matter movement doesn't become an industry as well, because we, we see that we see that trend happening as well. So Mix posed a wonderful question of our first topic, which is creating black wealth. So Mix asked the question, wonderful question. Brother Mix, you want to ask Sangu the question? Yeah. So the question for me is that, you know, when we talk about wealth building or creating wealth, um, a lot of times we are not all approaching or entering the conversation in the same space with the same perspective or the same background. So the question that I posed was, what does wealth mean to you? What is wealth? Um, and how would you define wealth? You know, it's, 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 it's a very important topic. And I say that because it goes back to, if we think about some of the debates we've had um, in Black America for a very long time, we can go back to the times of Du Bois versus Booker T. Washington. And a lot of times we tend to have this tendency to create these bifurcations of our history where we put our leaders in oppositions to each other. And so we have Du Bois versus Booker T, Malcolm versus King, but I reject that dichotomy. And I always say, how do we think about this holistically and see what we can learn from our predecessors and the leaders? And so there's, there's a ton of incredible scholarship we learned from Du Bois. But there's also a lot of powerful stuff we learned from Booker T, where Booker T really was focused and pushing on how do we get economically empowered, right? And, and you see some of that philosophy in... Um, one of my favorite Jay-Z albums is 444, right? Um, of course, I'm a, I mean, you both know. <laughs> yeah, the diamond is in the building on this side, brother. You know that. <laughs> I remember, a side note, I remember um, I, I, um, I took a philosophy class at Harvard College um, in... Uh, my freshman year. And we would be talking about Plato and Socrates. And in the middle of those discussions, I'll reference Jay-Z. 
my white like 80 something year old professor would lose her mind she's <laughs> 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 not a philosopher and i'm like who are you to tell me you're not a philosopher the philosopher is me right <laughs> and so um uh you know you know in 444 where he talks about um he talks about um uh financial freedom is the only hope right and and that's because there's a sense in which if if we if we think about how the world works we we we, we in theory had political freedom right where with whether whether it's going back to the 13th amendment um civil rights act voting rights all of that but but we've clearly seen that it's not enough right so it's important for us to have that economic freedom which is missing and this is where i see a lot of those parallels both in black america and in africa where the civil rights movement in the u.s was the same time where we had the decolonization movement in africa where african states were becoming independent and there was there was a symbiosis because dr king malcolm all the du bois died in ghana mm -hmm. all these and and yet all the newly liberated modernized african states were then put in pressure on the U.S. and the United Nations to say, you can't profess a rhetoric about freedom and human rights if you're enslaving the people that look like us, if you're subjugating people who look like us. You know, so, so there was that beautiful symbiosis. And, and you, I see those same parallels where there's political freedom, right, that's in theory been achieved in both places, but we don't have economic freedom. Hmm. And to me, until we have economic freedom, our political freedom is in peril. Hmm. Hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. And then for me, I, I'll I'll tag on, just, just to add to your point, it reminds me of the collective history of the earth, right? Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of events that occur and then reoccur throughout history. So the way I'm looking at it, I'm looking at history similar to a wheel, kind of in notion with that esoteric symbolism of the snake eating its own tail. So essentially, it's a wheel that repeats itself. And only if you're actually paying attention, do you actually see it's repeating yourself? Only if you actually do the research and research history, can you know, like, oh, wait a minute. This happened before an X, Y, and Z, right? This is exactly what Malcolm did. This is exactly what Martin did. They were able to identify those moments in history based upon the institutions that are validated by the populace. And they'd be like, hey, from this history that you taught us, X, Y, and Z happened before, then this happened, and now it's happening now. So it's just like, you know, we're obviously we're not going to take that. But is there any reason why it's happening again? And it's kind of a rhetorical question, right? So for me, Sangu's theory he was talking about is that it's only actualized with the economic freedom. And that's the one element that has been literally taken from people all over the world. You have Sangu's continent, Africa. How much has the rest of the world 
pillaged Africa for its resources, for its pe- wonderful, beautiful people and landscapes. I mean, for me, I feel like Africa, Africans as a whole should be in charge of Africa as opposed to multinational corporations. Personally, that's just me. Yeah, and I, <clears throat> I think, you know, you raise a number of different a, def- a number of different great points, uh, Sangu, and then Josh, you also raised some great points as well. Um, for me, I guess where I'm entering the conversation, I'm thinking about a number of different things. One, I totally agree and reject the notion that our leaders or some of our greats always need to be put up against one another. Um, I think that, you know, and that's why I often talk about why I'm against this whole notion of cancel culture, um, because I feel like there are times when you just can't throw some pieces of someone away because they might have given you something great. There's a person who can be racist, but also make a good children's book, Dr. Seuss, right? There's a person who can actually have a great um, poem, if by Rutger Kipling, but also still have racist um, notions and things of that nature. And those are just a couple of examples. What I'm saying is that we have to look at people in totality holistically and think about um, how we enter um, into this conversation about what wealth is um, from a holistic 360 perspective. Um, When I'm thinking about wealth too, before we even get to finances, I'm thinking about a number of things that I learned later on in life, because again, uh, the impact of slavery is real. And when you think about the colonialism of Africa, imperialism, et cetera, and you just see how these things happen across the globe, we become even more disconnected. So when I'm thinking about wealth, I'm thinking about one shirt right here. I love my people. Thinking about the fact that in many instances, we we were taught, I mean, being, a, being an African-American, being a Black African-American growing up in Harlem, you know, we were taught for whatever reason. I know the reasons now. But we're taught for whatever reason not to like Africans. They call them names, right? We were taught not to like Haitians. They call them Mm -hmm. names. Then we get to this point where we're all competing and fighting each other. So the African-Americans or the Black Americans don't get along with the Caribbean folk. The Caribbean folk don't get along with the African folk. We're all fighting each other. Um, We're all jockeying for resources or trying to, um, the whole crabs in the barrel notion, right? We're focusing on all the crabs in the barrel, but we're not talking about the barrel. Who even put us in here in the first place? So when we think about wealth, I'm thinking about knowledge of self. I'm thinking about health being wealth. I'm thinking about connectivity and family. Um, I'm thinking about love, love for for not only yourself, but love for your fellow man and for your fellow woman. Um, Thinking of all those things before we even get to that financial piece, because there's sometimes if you don't have that and you do obtain the finances, what are you going to do with that money? So I I just really want to know what that what that looks like. So that's that's how I'm entering this conversation. And, and, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very important what you say, Amex, because if we think about, I always say, if we look at the Black economic sphere, right, we have in the U.S. alone in Black America, we're looking at a multi-trillion dollar economy, just in Black America. In Africa, African consumers and African businesses spend $4 trillion, right? So in aggregate between, you know, you're you're actually looking at a massive multi-trillion dollar global black economy. Mm. But what's sad is if you look at the data, right, and we have data on this in terms of how long does money stay in different communities, mm-hmm. right? So there's data on how long does money stay in Arab American communities and Jewish American communities. And black communities is, is, is literally ours. Mm-hmm. 
whereas in other communities, money will circulate for 30 days, 60 days longer, right? So there's a sense in which capital isn't even really circulating within our community. And so there has to be an intentionality in how we think about ensuring that all the elements of the economy we create, right, has to be on building hmm. that economy within the community and ensuring that capital stays in. Hmm. That has to be an intentionality in how we construct that, right? We really have to figure out how do we create those economic linkages, right? How do we make sure that in the same way other communities have made sure that a dollar in that community stays and circulates in that community, how do we leverage that? How, because only when we're able to do that will we be able to you know, tackle a lot of the issues like um, um, uh, the unemployment, which we're, you know, we face disproportionately, and all the other issues, all the issues where the social economic brunt that we face will be mitigated if we can if we can keep that capital within the community it's mm. critical it's important it's very important and and of course just structural reasons for a lot of this stuff i mean we know about the history of redlining i mean we mm -hmm. know what happened when we tried to have a black wall street mm -hmm. <laughs> right and so it's not as if black people have it's not for lack of trying mm -hmm. <laughs> right we know the history mm -hmm. and we know the systematic ways in which, but we need to get smarter. We need to, to figure out ways in which we can kind of democratize that access and we can figure out, look, how do we take this black economy and make sure it's more inclusive? How do we make sure that women are empowered? That no one is getting left behind and how, how do we take this economy and and, and, and constructed in a way that enables us to achieve what we want, which is the creation of black wealth, the creation of black jobs, and the sustenance of that in a way that's sustainable, that's long-term, and that's gonna ensure that ultimately we can achieve the ever so, the, the, the ever so elusive economic freedom, which will be critical to us ensuring that we forever safeguard our political freedom. Hmm. Absolutely. And I love everything about that because it's all about leverage, right? So as black people, you know, collectively, we understand that we have the talent and we have the skill set. So those are already actual commodities and assets in the market that are deemed as incredibly valuable. That That's number one. Number two is that Sangu is right. And we certainly have tried, but to no avail or things like Tulsa happen, right? So in us trying, now we're trying for the establishment. So all of our primary productive hours and work ethic, that's going to someone else's bottom line, right? So someone else directly benefits from that. And we, we're only on the other side of that uh, transaction, let's say, and we're just exchanging time for money, right? And as I'm sure you both you're, both of you are scholarly gentlemen. I don't think there's anywhere in history that anyone who was considered wealthy did not separate their time from their money. So you got to be able to make money passively, right? That's the only way that you're ever going to achieve wealth, which also means starting black businesses, right? 
So it's simply understanding our value. And a lot of that comes from inner confidence, right? Sagu had to talk about it when he talked about the mental health as an entrepreneur. That is pivotal in terms of your success, especially in our community when it rarely gets talked about. In fact, it's, it's one of those things like, oh, nah, I'm good type of thing, right? So we got to change that immediately. And it's, it's one of those things that'll have compounding interest socially, health-wise, and actual wealth into perpetuity. So I, I to me, th this is, <laughs> I feel like I was born for this, so I, I just can't wait to <laughs> flex those creative muscles. What about you, Brother Mix? Yeah, I mean, I think, first and foremost, I think just to go off of um, one of the comments, so Brother Dean put wealth as generational assets. Um, totally agree. Um, my, my question, or not my question, but what I would suggest is that how do we build that, right? Um, so if we're talking about we're talking about wealth. So let's use another coin analogy, right? So if you have two signs of a coin, um, it's not just about investment; it's also about divestment, right? So there's a lot of times we invest in things. What are we investing in? Okay, so we're investing in our communities, etc. But are we still frequenting those other places that don't invest in our community? There's one thing to contribute to our economy within our own communities, and still be contributing to other people's economies who don't really care about us. They just see us as a dollar. So how do we make sure that we're not only investing, but simultaneously we're divesting our dollars, being more conscious of where we spend our money, why we spend our money there. And if we're going to be consumers, understand the type of power that comes with being a consumer. If we can't be producers, or if we choose not to be producers in a certain industry, um, how do we make sure that our, con our consumer power really affects change. And I'm not just talking about on someone's bottom line. I'm also talking about politically. I'm talking about policy change uh, because we have a number of different things that change in terms of us getting money, but then there's policy that gets in the way. There's politics that might get in the way. So as we're building generational wealth, let's make sure that we're also divesting from spaces that have always left us out of the conversation, that have always barred us from actually building wealth. Let's make sure we're divested from companies that don't have our best interests in mind. Let's make sure we're divested from companies that don't allow us to get that health and that wealth. Um, so it's two sides of that coin in order for us to build wealth. So we have to build our own wealth while making sure our wealth doesn't go to other places where they use that money actually to stifle us. You know, the, the three things that, that, that I want to say, the first is um, uh, there's something Maya Angelou said that stayed with me. She said the function the very serious function of racism is distraction. Mm. Okay. And um, I, I, I spent last weekend hanging out with this old African-American woman who has set up this incredible institute, the Kokobite Institute in Ghana. She was a member of the Black Panthers. And she, you know, she traveled to Cuba, Guinea, did all that stuff, was working with them. And then in the 70s, she moved to Germany and raised her kids there. And she told me, she said, it was a different experience in Germany where she didn't have to deal with the structural violence of the racism she experienced in the US. And she suddenly realized she had the time to be creative. Mm -hmm. So I say this all the time that when, when the great that Maya Angelou was on point when she said the very serious function of racism is distraction because we are so focused 
unfortunately, on thinking about grappling with reacting to racism and its violence, that it distracts us from being able to do what we need to do. So we need to be aware of that, to consciously say, okay, we need to fight this evil, but we need to simultaneously make sure we're not distracted from what we need to do to get to where we need to go to. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and that's, that's always that burden that we carry. The second thing, I'm so glad you brought up mental health because it's something that for too long is, has been stigmatized in our community. And so people suffer in silence. People suffer in silence for too long, yet there is nothing weak about being vulnerable. In fact, being vulnerable makes us human. Hmm. Right. And, 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 you know, I watched the other day an interview from the 70s between James Baldwin and Nikki Giovanni in which Baldwin was talking about what it does to a black man when he is unable to express himself and how it breaks him and prevents him from expressing love and being a beacon of love in his family. We need to break that cycle. Because our father's generation poured it all in because they had to be men to endure and suffer and go through the violence they experienced. And I get it. But for our generation, we have to do things differently. And we have to create a space where our children can feel comfortable being vulnerable. So we break that cycle. Because only in raising our boys differently will we get men who will be vulnerable enough to love and will be vulnerable enough to actually be able to create that space to be fully human. Because if you can't fully express yourself, you're not being fully human. And the third thing, to tie it back to this wealth thing, because part of, being, part of wealth is health. Right. Part of wealth is having that mental space, that mental health, that mental clarity to create the wealth. Mm -hmm. But the third point is I want to talk about what I call endowment thinking. I was in a room in 2015. I was volunteering at the time for Harvard's capital campaign. And I'll never forget. I was in the room with the president of Harvard at the time, Drew Faust, and a whole bunch of billionaires. They gave a presentation and they said, this is the world we imagine in 2115. To prepare for that world, we're gonna do a capital campaign to raise six billion. They ultimately raised 10 billion. I want you to think about it. They took a hundred year view. This is where the world is going and this is what we want to build to position us to get there. Endowment thinking, long-term. Are we, are we thinking on those time scales? Or is our vision 
what do I do this week, next week, next month, and next year? So it, I, I remember I walked out of that meeting and I thought, I said, damn. <laughs> I've been thinking in months and years. And these white people be out here thinking a hundred years and planning. And, 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 you know, at my graduation, I went to a friend's graduation party with my brother. They had a magician. <laughs> he was doing tricks. He said, everyone take out a pen and paper. Write on that pen, dream vacation, wherever you can go for a weekend. And also write any amount of pocket money you can have. And then he goes around and he points to you and he can guess and he'll tell you immediately where you, what you wrote and, and the amount. And people are just like, oh my God, that's crazy. While he was doing that, I realized my brother suddenly became embarrassed and buried his head. And I said, bro, what's going on? Why are you, why are you so crestfallen? And he said, because when they called the first white guy, the first white guy said, Monaco, $100,000. The second white guy they called said, Central Pay, $200,000. He said, I looked at my paper and I realized I had Jamaica, $5,000. Yeah. Now think about it. The magician said, use your imagination and create pocket money for what there were no limits. Yet he had limited his own imagination. <laughs> and he's thinking, man, if I got five grand, I'm good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And so there's a sense in which we limit ourselves. We limit our ambition. We limit our, our sense of imagination of what is possible. So I walked out of there and I said, endowment thinking, I'm going to switch it up. What is an endowment? An endowment is a large pool of capital. You often will only take 5% and the rest stays forever. So if I have an endowment of $100,000, I can conservatively probably grow it at six to eight percent a year. My payoff of five percent, I get five thousand dollars a year off that. So I started to work backwards and I said, well, okay. So if a hundred thousand is giving me five thousand a year and it'll keep growing forever, a million, fifty thousand, ten million. 500, so you could so when you think about it from that perspective, it means that okay, that that endowment will be there forever, and you just work off the streams, which means your children, your great great forever and perpetuity. And it's those streams that funded a lot of those classmates we had at Petty. Back. Are thinking in that way how do we create our long-term endowments because so that when our kids go to petty 
they go with a very different, it, it's different terms. It's a different engagement. It's a different mindset. Mm. In- yes, sir. That's I, a sermon. I, I love that. Preach, eh? amen, right? But but yes, Sangu brought it up, right? It's those self-limiting beliefs that we are taught. That That's part of the indoctrination sequence, right? So the whole aspect of the box, I feel like my life's purpose is to limit that analogy forever. Like you, you, I feel like when you have something, even conceptually like the box, you're still going to micromanage your creativity the same way that our freedom is also micromanaged, right? Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, we follow the rules and yet still somehow we get legally murdered so being in those type of environments is the literal definition of a war zone yeah and then we wonder why we you know we have living environments for our people specifically around the world that create symptoms like chronic ptsd things like that and for me time and space to be creative is void of distraction right sangu's original point so it's it's the whole i mean there's micro and then there's macro but endowment thinking that's like hyper macro and that's what i'm talking about because we live in this instant society and i'll be honest that it's just getting oh i'm ready to (laughs) i'm ready to uh live a little bit longer let's say in terms of conceptually what about you brother mix no it's real it's really real and i appreciate everything that you said particularly with the endowment thinking and i think when it comes to the whole notion of what racism can do to a people who have been oppressed uh the part once you get past the institutional and systemic racism to a point where it becomes a learned behavior to a point where you have internalized oppression to a point where you can't even fathom given that exercise that you said the magician did a life where you can really think without limits. And then being in the education space too, you think about the fact that I don't know much curriculum that actually teach you anything about financial literacy. I don't know anything that teaches you how to balance a checkbook anymore. We had home economics back in the day, but that doesn't really take place these days. And then even when you think about creativity, they're taking arts out of school and in a lot of ways, you know, they're it's underfunded. Um, and that's where you get your creative thinking. That's where you can imagine um, or that's where you can imagine, that's where you can innovate, right? And when you think about all these situations, like I used to work at uh, Swarthmore College. And one of the things I used to talk about, people used to talk about liberal arts college and why would you go to a liberal arts college? Um, why are the humanities important, et cetera? And I was like, honestly, if you take away the humanities, we take away humanity. And in that sense, it's like, that's how we learn through the creatives, right? That's how we learn through the folks who actually were reading the stories that they have talked about for centuries upon centuries. They're passing on information for us to continue so we can run our leg of the race. So we're thinking about this wealth piece. There's a lot of times because of racism, because of internalized oppression, because of fear of the unknown, because of lack of knowledge, because of lack of love, we get boxed to a point where we only see what's in front of us. Or there are times when we want to risk it all to be an entrepreneur, but we don't have that cushion of cash to fall back on. There's no there's no coincidence why many entrepreneurs who launch a business are white male. It's not a coincidence. It's because usually, particularly when you think about United States of America, think about hegemonic culture, White, male, cisgender, heterosexual, wealthy, able-bodied, et cetera, right? So we don't necessarily have that type of startup money or seed funding to get things going. So we have to work even harder with that. 
Not to mention we're navigating a racist society, redlining like you mentioned. You have folks who won't give you bank loans. You have folks who talk about your credit score. And let's talk about credit to begin with, right? And even having credit or knowing that you should start to build credit or having so much crushing debt from not only college, but think about a boarding school, right? Like Petty. So there's just so many pieces there. That's why it's such a deep thing. But that endowment thinking piece, I hope folks are really listening because that's a game changer. That's a mindset. That's how you, like institutions always are doing strategic planning and they do it usually every 10 years. They're always thinking ahead. So if you can think about doing 10 strategic plans in one sitting and try to map out a hundred years, you good, you real good. So I hope folks are really listening to what you're saying, good brother. Absolutely. And so now that we're at that time to transition to the next topic, which is connecting black people. So brother Sangu, you have more experience than both of us in this feat. So when it comes to connecting people for let's say endowment size, uh, capital for lack of better words. Oh, that's interesting. I think his picture was frozen for a little bit. All right. So he's probably yeah. back in. Hmm. By the way, Sangu is a trooper because it is 10.45 p.m. in Ghana right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we him. For sure. Oh, by the way, just a little uh, a little ad for everyone. Uh, <laughs> during our intermission, drinking from Uncle Nearest. Are you? Uh, what, indeed. A, what a coincidence. That's exactly what's in my cup <laughs> right now. <laughs> <laughs> really? Exactly. It's like the ancestors tapped us on our shoulder and said, drink this. <laughs> Absolutely. What up, brother Sangu? Back on, back on. <laughs> there we go. Down, we, we appreciate you being a trooper because we know it's 10.45 p.m. in Ghana right now. So we appreciate you staying up. Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, you know, b- back in the petty days, we used to stay up real late. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. Yeah, you know, what is lights out? You kidding me? Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. So when it comes to bringing together a group of people similar to, you know, the Avengers and whatnot for endowment size money. What is the best way to do it, especially with our people specifically, since we really are in need worldwide of this endowment type thinking? So you see, there's something it it, it goes down to this principle, the power of compounding. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm 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 now on the board of trustees of Petty, and I'll tell you when I was much younger, my mind was always like, "All right, how do I take ten dollars and turn it into a hundred dollars? How do I ten x?" And then I get on on the board of Petty with a you know three four hundred million dollar endowment. And folks are like, how do we grow at uh, 6 to 8%? But do that consistently forever. <laughs> and 
it, it, it changed my mind and thinking about it because sometimes there's a sense in which we're rushing, right? We, you know, you suddenly want to, you, you know, you want to take $10 and turn into $100 and $100, you know, high risk, high reward. The world doesn't work that way. If $10 can turn into $100, you can also lose everything, right? And so it, 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 part of that endowment thinking isn't just the long term, but it's also how do you think about your portfolio construction? Right. How, you know, how are you saving? How mm. robustly are you saving? Right. So be, be, how do we think? How do, first the first principles first? You got to first make sure. Do you have some liquidity out there where if anything bad happened, you lost a job or whatever? Do you know? Do you have? Can you be good for six months? What's your what's your debt situation? Can you improve on that? Can you, you know, so, so, so there's some basic foundational things and then, and then just figuring out how, how do you actually just, cause it's all about compounding and over time. So I tell people in the beginning, look, even if it's a lot of, I have conversations with a lot of people about the markets and, you know, there's, I won't get into this argument. There's some people that are going to try and game it and do all of that. But to me, it's just like, look, just, if I look at the long-term data and the long-term trend, you just need to compound. So even if it's saying I'm going to put a hundred bucks, let's say you just said, look, I'm just going to put a hundred bucks in just broad equity exposure, just every month. I just put in a hundred bucks, just that. That's twelve hundred dollars a year. That's twelve thousand dollars over ten years of just the capital, not including. So if we average out what the S and P could do over that time period, mm -hmm. and you you, I mean, suddenly you could that. Hundred dollars a year over a decade is suddenly you're now looking at probably a fifty thousand dollar portfolio, right? Yet if today we were talking about creating a fifty thousand dollar portfolio, you'd be thinking, "Where am I?" But suddenly the hundred dollars a year attitude of "I'm just going to deploy that," you suddenly now have over a decade that fifty thousand dollar portfolio, right? And then and then you add in another debt. Suddenly now now you're in a space where just that hundred dollar a year maybe increasing now with inflation, that alone, that practice can lead you to now suddenly have a six-figure portfolio in equity markets over time, right? So it's, it's I don't think, I think we need to, to shy away from the, how do I turn $10 and $100? And just think about how do I build a portfolio? How do I make sure that over time I'm just consistent I'm investing, I'm thinking long-term, and I'm being prudent about it. So don't take your grandmother's retirement money. You know what I mean? It's, it's, mm -hmm. those, it's those basics. Mm. Absolutely, because that at this stage in the game right on this cosmic chessboard if you will thinking with endowment thinking and thinking into perpetuity we're behind the eight ball so at least in our frame of history we're at least give or take 400 years behind the eight ball so we needed to start 400 years before like yesterday right so for me this is the and i feel like the events in the world are making it so easy in my perspective of uniting black people specifically for a 
common purpose that is going to help black people in the future right so i feel like if if things like black on black violence doesn't dramatically decrease in 2020 in addition to all the other crazy things because think about it if you were to say okay if you would ask someone would uh black on black violence decrease in 2020 most people would say no but after experiencing 2020 some people be like you know what that's something that actually could happen so let's let's do it sangusan let's limit those self-limiting beliefs let's actually make it a reality and then that type of thinking just that thinking alone is going to compound because it's kind of like that that uh that coke commercial right where you have all the people doing doing uh doing essentially having manners and doing the right thing in every central every situation just being unselfish doing the unselfish play here let me get this door for you right Th little things like that little things like that accrue over time compounding and to me it's that simple so not only do we need to compound in terms of business and commerce but we also need to compound in social equity just essentially being a great human being and i feel like black people we do that exceptionally well it's incredibly authentic and if we're being incredibly honest it is viewed as a very valuable commodity and asset throughout the world. So people already, they already want to be in our world. So I feel like it's really time to leverage that in a very sustainable way, as Sangu is saying. And I think that that level of thinking just, because uh, Sangu, just to give a little context, I was talking to Mix about this for a, a couple of years now, but I really admire and as you were saying about keeping the money within the community. So let's look at the, the Jewish community because I went to a JCC growing up. So I, I have a lot of Jewish friends. So just being this observing their culture, it's very interesting how at the age of 15, excuse me, 13, they're now a young man, a young lady, right? So essentially they're perceiving the world differently, differently than every, let's say their peers on on average because now you're looking at things differently and i was i was imagining i was like imagine if we had an age of 15 or 16 in the black community like listen you now now you're you're going to be a young man and a young lady or a young prince and a young princess type of thing that that royal endowment macro long-term generational thinking so you by that let's say at 15 now you're going to start your own business right so, and you're going to make it sustainable and you're going to make it passive. So by the time you go to college, now you're looking at college completely differently. Now you're going to college like, oh my gosh, how can I scale my business? Could you imagine all the, because again, we have a lot of degrees, but again, I don't know if this meme is true or not, but apparently in the 1800s, black people owned more land then than they do now, but we have more degrees now. So now we need to put those degrees to use, right? And, and actionable, tangible ways that propel us into the future. What do you think, Brother Mix? Well, I think it's, and this is why it's always a complicated and complex discussion because we can't have this conversation in a vacuum. Um, it's an internal and external battle. It's an internal and external struggle. We can change our mindset over, we can change our mindset overnight. And we say that we're working together, but we cannot neglect and act like there still aren't forces that will do everything they can to prohibit us from doing it. And I'm not just talking about politics. I'm talking about people literally killing us, literally. 
Whenever we start to talk about the money, if we want to be on our OT Genesis floor, you know, I'll be getting to the money, everybody mad. That's exactly what happens. The minute you start talking about money, look at Martin Luther King. The minute he started talking about money, coming from people's pockets, talk about redistribution of wealth and power, done. He's gone. And this was the nonviolent, peaceful, loving brother, right? But the radical side that folks don't want people to know about, that's the person who they killed. They killed radical king. Not I have a dream king. They killed radical king. That's why, because he was getting folks to actually look at the money, the power that he had with the boycott bus, or with the with the bus boycott, 381 days, right? Talk about endowment thinking, right? He's really thinking that way. This is how we're going to hurt him. Um, and then you also have to think about all these pieces in the sense of, you think about back um, in the day where there was Black Wall Street, you had businesses, but at the same time, it was still racism. There were still people who were able to act then. Um, as white militias, vigilantes, and like just literally get government-sponsored um, abuse of black people, burn down their buildings, burn down their businesses, et cetera. And then if you see that happen all the time, there's always ebbs and flows in the consciousness of the people. There are things that happen that might move people, galvanize them to actually take up arms and move in a movement, so to speak. But there are also things that always deter them from doing so. They're fearful or they're really just trying to survive. And all these things are good in theory, but in practice, we don't do it. So when I think about even thinking about degrees, and here's the, tr here's the tricky part about degrees. If, if getting a degree, and this goes back to even thinking about what you said earlier, Sango, about W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. You, know, you want to talk about being a part of the academy or make sure that you're doing agriculture, vocational training, things of that nature. Again, it shouldn't be an either or conversation. It needs to be a both and. Um, but there's a lot of times when we get caught up in that either or thinking and we don't have the both and conversation. And we also don't actually trouble the issue and say, hey, some folks are actually going to school to get an education, to get a degree, because that is or has been proven to be social currency and capital, particularly for people of color in this space, because we need those as tickets into certain spaces. People are not checking for Mikhail Israel without his degree. A cop might treat me differently if they don't see the Cornell bumper sticker or the Cornell decal on my on my window. Right. So. We have to actually be real about those things. College is not for everyone, but neither is being an entrepreneur. <laughs> so it's like, we, we, can't, we can't just have these conversations because some people ain't about that life. Some people need more structure. Some people are more comfortable in that space. And we also need folks to push the work forward in certain spaces that traditionally people who don't go to school will not be in those rooms. So we, when we get caught up on this either or thinking and we don't look at it in totality and we don't actually ask the next question, the probing question, and just like not really think about how all the external factors actually do and can influence the internal factors, um, then we're kidding ourselves. So when I'm thinking about this conversation in terms of connectivity and how do we build, we have to think about it's, it's a game both on the inside and outside. So if you're a basketball player, you got to work on your inside game and your outside game, right? You have to know how to get to the hoop and you might have to know how to pull up for that three, right? And then the other piece is defense. You got to be a complete player. So as a community, we need to make sure that we are, we're building our team. We have to make sure our roster is good. We need to make sure we have people who can do everything. We have that Dennis Robin over there who's going to get the rebounds and play some killer defense. You got MJ when the game's online, you can always call on him. You got Scottie Pippen who is just the best both ways, right? We need that when we're building our teams and our organizations and really working together to build that synergy, we really have to think about how we're covering all the bases and not get caught up in this either or thinking and think about everything in totality. No, the, 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 there's a lot of very important points raised. Look, three things I'll, I'll share. Um, I like to think in threes. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
<laughs> the first is, you know, it's funny what you said about degrees. Um, I remember I have uh, three degrees from Harvard and a master's in international human rights law from Oxford. Yet in every interaction I have had with law enforcement, my degrees have been meaningless, right? Because um, they don't see three Harvard degrees and an Oxford degree, they see a nigger. And um, it has shaken me and shaped me in a way that is difficult for people who are not black men to understand how it completely transforms your habitus to the point where to this day, um, the violence I have personally experienced from law enforcement in the US has been such that to this day, anytime I drive on the highway, I put cruise control five miles below the speed limit. People will be honking. And there are times I will be driving and I'll be, I literally will be crying because I'm like, I can't speed because I don't want to die. I don't want a situation where someone pulls me over and I'm reaching for my wallet or whatever it is. And yeah, I, I don't want to be another hashtag on social media. And this was my adaptation to survive as a black man in America. And this is how much it fucks you up. I was in the UK, um, uh, this, this was when I was at Oxford. The cops don't even have guns in the UK. They don't carry guns. I was in a store buying stuff. I try, I'm very pro-environment these days, so I, don't, I try not to take plastic bags. And I'll carry it or I'll bring my own basket. So I paid for it in the self-checkout. I walked out, and as I'm walking out, I don't know what happened, and the alarm went off. Immediately, two decades of, almost two decades of being in America, trained me on how to survive as a black man in America, kicks in. So without thinking, I drop everything and I lie on the ground flat, arms sprawled. Hmm. Okay. The security are traumatized. They, they, like, they run up to me and they go, we're so sorry. We know you pay like with I mean, they're traumatized. They've hmm. never done anything like that. I pick up the stuff and my hands are shaking like I have Parkinson's. I'm trembling all the way back to my apartment. And only then did it hit me so hard that even an ocean away in the UK, the adaptation of what it is to survive as a black man in America has shaped me so much that in a store, in a country where they don't even have guns, my first instinct is just live, throw it, go on the ground, arms out. And it's, 
so 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 to to your point there's a sense in which even with all the degrees in the world it cannot mediate how we are seen as black men in this eyes and, and that's where this awakening with the black lives this this consciousness is so important and so powerful in trying to expose what we have known to be our realities for a very long time. The second thing is this very critical point you raised about not everyone needs to be an entrepreneur. I say this all the time that, you know, we've over romanticized the entrepreneur and we've, we've created this trap where everyone feels pressure, like I have to be an entrepreneur. Why do we over glorify it? I mean, it's hard being an entrepreneur. It's difficult, there are mental health struggles, it's lonely. It's not for everyone. And it's okay not to be an entrepreneur. There's, 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 it's perfectly okay to get your nine to five and to earn your capital and stock some away and equity exposure and to build your long-term endowment. That is fine. We need to stop this nonsense of trying to put everyone in a box and suddenly create this idea that, you know, I saw this tweet one time that I thought was the one of the most, you know, someone basically said, you know, I, I would rather, it was to the effect of I'd rather make $100 working for myself, you know, than make $1,000 working for someone else. I was like, why? You're $900 poor. <laughs> Like, <laughs> like, you know, we need to get away from that over-romanticizing of the entrepreneur. And the final thing, when we talk about connectivity, is not just social connectivity. How do we have economic connectivity? And by that, I mean giving back. A lot of times when we talk about philanthropy, we think of old white men giving money. Or as I saw in one stand-up comedian say, he said, if, if, you, if you're so rich and you're giving all that money, maybe you took too much in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> right, but let me dig a bit into philanthropy. What does philanthropy mean? Philanthropy comes from philanthropy, you know, Philanthropos tropos. The word actually comes from the Greeks, from a, a, a play called Prometheus Bound in 5th BC, in which Oshilus, the protagonist, was able to give the early humans the gift of fire, which represented technology, technological advancement, and, he, and importantly, he gave them hope. So the Greek word actually means humanity lo loving. Humanity loving. That is the etymology of philanthropy. And so it is philanthropy is not about being old and white and rich and giving money and, and endowed funds. It is about loving humanity. Hmm. In 2014, when I was in graduate school at Harvard Law School, I had a dream in which I, I genuinely thought I died. Hmm. 
I woke up from this nightmare and for a good 20 to 30 seconds, I wasn't sure if I was alive or dead. Needless to say, I did not go back to bed. Mm. I took out a bottle of red wine, played some Marvin Gaye on my, um, you know, I'm old school. I still have a vinyl recorder. Get it, get it. <laughs> <laughs> and I drank red wine, listened to Marvin, and I, I literally pondered throughout the whole night. And I thought to myself, what if I was dead? What if I died? What, what would my life have meant? And I realized in that moment that I wasn't ready to die. And I thought, but I want to be ready to die. Ooh. I don't want to live a life where at any given moment, if the Lord calls me, I feel like I can't leave. And I said, I need to change how I'm living. And so, because before, my mindset before was, I will wait till I reach x amount of wealth and then i'll give back and i realized no baby it doesn't need to be that way i can give back as i scale up right i could take endowment thinking with giving back too you could take a, a percentage and i took that mentality and i said i want to be intentional about giving back and empowering and that is why to date one of the proud you know when you could, you know, you mentioned, you know, the GPIC venture portfolio companies, and then we've now had our portfolio companies raise $900 million and all this stuff. But all of that to me is not my proudest. My proudest achievement is to date, I've been able to commit my resources. And you, I mean, you guys know I was on full financial aid at Petty. I was on full financial aid at Harvard. I was cleaning toilets at Harvard. But I've been able to say I need to give back. And I have already given a million dollars to black causes. Mm. Be so I, I could die tomorrow and I'll die a happy man because I know, and importantly, in the given. I had endowment thinking, so my giving is endowed, which means 3,000 years from now, all those funds I set up will still exist. The scholarship I set up at Harvard for black girls still exists and will exist forever in perpetuity. The fund at Petty to enable people like us who were on aid, who needed a little bit of extra money to buy books or a little bit of extra money so you can afford a tux and you're not the only person who looks like a caveman at prom. You know, those things to ensure that the experiences of black people will be vastly improved. And so I am very comfortable dying at any given moment because I feel very strongly that I have lived life to the fullest extent that I've taken all the blessings and opportunities God has given me. And importantly, I have given back. And that connectivity is important. Amen. Absolutely. Amen. And I do think gratitude is going to be the overwhelming, uniting element of this movement is because I feel like, especially now, statistically so, because we've seen it in the media. I think black people in general are incredibly thankful 
and happy to be alive. So I feel like we're going to going forward, we're going to view life differently, right? Not just viewing it as a, as a pawn on the, on the cosmic chessboard, but more like, wait a minute, not only could I be a king, but I could also create my own cosmic chessboard, right? And I love Mix's, his statement about everyone has their role because it's a very humbling sentiment because you guys are right. Not everyone wants to be an entrepreneur the same way that we all understand the concept that not everyone wants to go to college. It's a very similar concept. So for me, it's about getting those people who are entrepreneurs, then you get to create black owned businesses, right? But then they're also in charge of designating the leadership because they own the company, right? So now you have an opportunity to get all these, and Sangu wrote up earlier, all these amazing black women, right? Who are leading family households mm-hmm. and being the fastest growing group in America of entrepreneurs. So for me, it's, 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 it's all about, like Sangu said, paying it forward, but paying it forward into perpetuity, right? With that endowment thinking. So now you have all the elements in place because right now, you all you have let's say the the systematic establishment in order and they'll put in charge whoever they want to get you know put in charge and sangu actually put it uh, he actually posted an amazing article about the, on the new york times about how there's a lack of diversity in fortune 500 companies and it's it's incredibly important to have our people in those leadership roles, similar to how we had President Obama in that leadership role, who actually understands the type of oppression systematically that you're going to be going through. So as we can see in finance, there are no black people on the senior leadership teams of Bank of America, JP Morgan, and Wells Fargo nor in technology, there are zero black members of senior leadership in teams like Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Amazon. In total, there are just four black chief executives among the 500 largest companies in the country. And when you think about it in terms of that, it's, it's, it's staggering to think that you could actually compete unless you have the mindset of that endowment thinking of that macro thinking of like understanding understanding the chessboard but also each role on the chessboard because each role is pivotal right so it's just like the credits at the movie even though your name might be at the end it might not be with the stars each person in that production is essential literally without you the movie would not have been created so it once we look at things from this let's say unselfish point of view, but understanding that everyone has their role, I think things will start happening more quicker in a very substantial way. What about you, brother Mix? Yeah, I think a a couple of things. Um, One, I would say that in terms of this whole notion of synergy, um, there are plenty of times when we need to realize that in order for us to compound, sometimes we have to combine. And what I mean by that, there's times when, you know, everybody might want to be that star player or everybody might want to be that entrepreneur. Everybody might want to be that that chief. Right. Um, it is OK 
for us to work together and realize that your, your role does not necessarily dictate or reflect your responsibility. So therefore, if we're thinking about a person who might be a president of a company, it doesn't mean that you're the most important person. Doesn't mean you do all the work. In some cases, you don't do as much work, but you have the you have the guidance and the wisdom to actually get the people um, who have other talents and other gifts um, to work to their fullest potential. When you think about um, the the post you just shared, that automatically reminds me of history. And I'm thinking about we need to start making T-shirts and let folks know that there's no taxation without representation. If we're not represented in some of these spaces, then there's certain things we shouldn't have to deal with. I mean, we're already taxed enough with racism, with uh, social inequities, et cetera. The list goes on. Um, but again, I think it really comes back to the mindset where we have to heal as a, as a human race in particular, but we need, to, we need to heal within our Black community. We need to heal and understand that when I look at you, no matter where you're from, no matter what your ethnicity is, you're my brother. You're my sister. We should work together, not be each other's adversary. Now we can have competitive competition to the point where it's like we're challenging each other to be a better version of ourselves, but there's no need for us to tear each other down. So when I think about combining talents, I think about I can offer pro bono services to a number of different black owned businesses and corporations. I can help a corporation get to the next level without having to be the CEO of that corporation. Um, I can help someone found an institution where they will be an entrepreneur without having to be an entrepreneur myself. And there's just so many ways that we can actually pool our resources because we're rich, rich with resources. There's just so many messages out there that try to divide and conquer us. There's so many messages out there that, for example, and I know we're gonna get into it later on, but just thinking about all the stuff that I learned or did not learn about Africa growing up. It's a dark continent. It doesn't have resources. Now, how come these white folks keep going over there and taking stuff? <laughs> what are they? What are they taking? <laughs> Nothing. Like I'm confused. Darkness. I'm confused. So when we when we think about what we're taught and all the things that we're fed and all the things that we really need to interrogate and really scrutinize um, and go through with a fine tooth comb to see whether or not we are really being told the truth or whether it's a crock of you know what and that's how we can further along this connectivity is when we start to see each other as equals, when we start to see each other as, um, as friends, not enemies, when we start to encourage each other to be better and support each other to be better. And I think really adopting that whole philanthropic spirit that Sango just mentioned, I think we should really be working towards that. There's no reason why we shouldn't be giving back to our communities. There's no reason why we shouldn't be given a, not a handout, but a hand up to people in need. Because a lot of times, I know for me, I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for people who gave me a hand up. Not a hand down, a hand up. So I think that's something that we need to really think about or reflect on. Preach, brother. <laughs> Absolutely. And Sanku, if you don't mind, could you let the audience know about your wonderful book here? Making Futures, a young, excuse me, young entrepreneurs in a dynamic Africa. What are people in the States missing about all the opportunities and the magnificent continent of Africa? Mm. Yeah, no. So, you know, this book actually took me about seven years. Mm. Because, so, 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 you know, 
the, the thing about the, the African continent is geographically and spatially speaking, we could fit the US, Canada, South America, China, in the continent of Africa and still have space. It is massive, right? It is massive. Um, and, you know, 54 countries. Um, and, you know, uh, a, a flight from Ghana to South Africa is probably like six hours, right? To, to some places, it's about 12 hours apart. Like, it's just, it's a, it's a massive. So if you think about, you know, from, if you flew from the U.S. to South Africa, it'll probably take you about 18 hours to get there. Right, it's 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 just it's a vast continent, rich and diverse. Fifty-four different countries. I've now I've spent time in forty-seven hmm. of them. So I traveled all over the continent. I interviewed over six hundred young entrepreneurs to get a real sense of what's going on. And I mean, it's incredible. The stories, incredible. I mean, you have uh, Sia a young brother from South Africa. This brother, NASA named a small planet after him. Wow. When, this boy is a bad boy. He's, he's a real genius. I mean, he, he invented a rocket when he was like six or seven and blew up his mother's kitchen. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I mean, the South African equivalent of the FBI shows up to his house when he was a kid and 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 they tell his mother, you know, we, we need to search your house. She's like, what's going on? And they're like, you know, where we believe there's a terrorist living here. Hmm. And the mother is like, what are you talking about? Um, it's I live here alone with my seven year old son. And they're like, no, ma'am, we, we, you know, we've had uh, someone's been ordering rocket fuel. <laughs> <laughs> what? It's like, no, he's, <laughs> he's building his rocket. <laughs> um, so you have incredible stories like that. You have um, incredible stories of people like Farida Bidway who was born with cerebral palsy and uh, didn't let her physical disability be an impediment to her and now runs one of the largest microfinance software technology companies in the world is a world economic forum, young global leader, extraordinary sister, doing amazing things. You have, people, you have Denise Uineza. Denise lost most of her family in the Rwandan genocide, mm. right? And with so much tragedy, she still said, you know, she, she, she told me something I will never forget. And I, I, I want to, I want to share the quote because it, 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 um, it, it really, it really stayed with me. She said, and I quote, she said, she, she feels burdened by survivor's guilt. Mm. Right. And she told me, she said, Sango, I need to do all I can to honor their absence achieve what they would have achieved if they were still alive hmm. right she, she she went has gone on to build a great tech business out there um you know i, I 
just extraordinary people. Marcus Gora in Zimbabwe, who has built a phenomenal gallery for artists and he's refused to take any donations. He said, and Marcus, it's incredible how he, so Marcus has, his gallery is almost like a venture capital fund type model where he brings these artists, invests in them, give them the space, helps get them to international exhibitions, and then they take a cut and then they use the profits to reinvest. And, you know, he, I mean, he has so many incredible artists. They're doing well. I mean, some of the artists are selling artwork for like $25,000 a piece. He told me that and I was like, damn, my mom should have made me draw when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, all oh, that math she was making me doing, she should have. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, he shared something really powerful. So you had lots of Europeans and a whole bunch of people that wanted to give that offered to fund his stuff. And he, he turned all the money down. He refused to take a dollar from, from any donor. And I was like, I want to, I want to share. I, I was trying to understand it. I was like, well, why? And, um, and he said, he said, I realized that artists lack the creative freedom to do what they really wanted to do because a lot of funding is very conditional. It comes with strings attached and pushes a particular message. You know, he recalled one period when all the artists in Zimbabwe suddenly started paintings about HIV AIDS. He said that wasn't natural. It was clear it was geared towards attracting funding. And the people see through that as well and then the artist ceases to be an artist and starts to be in part of an advertising campaign. Hmm. And, and, um, and so it was, you know, it was really powerful because he told me, he said something I want to share with you. He said, in colonial times, art spaces were only for elites. They were colonial white spaces. We had all these signs like no trespassers that were directed at us. People were not welcome or invited to art spaces. And those feelings are still there and we have to tear them down. So he's been, the gallery has, has tried to build support with the local art community. It's been building bridges between artists and local communities. It's participating in urban renewal and is bringing art exhibitions to, to the ghetto, right? Where many, members have felt like art is a white space. They know this is our space too. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was because, I mean, look, and he showed me, there were people offering him quite a bit of money to want to fund him, free money. But he told me, he said, there's no price for my creative freedom. There's no price for our dignity. And, you know, that's endowment thinking. He's thinking long-term. Mm -hmm. And the model is working beautifully now, right? Because these artists are able to now move on and go into national ex exhibitions and make $25,000 a piece. I mean, mm. you do 10 of those a year. <laughs> yeah, you do 10 of those a year. <laughs> These guys are in Zimbabwe. <laughs> but, exactly. That's amazing. You know, they're, they're, they're living extraordinary lives. 
Mm. I met just so many extraordinary people and I encourage people to read mm -hmm. and learn about these entrepreneurs. But one of the things that was very important for me um, and you see in the book was gender parity. And, and the reason that was so critical is my publisher, Bibi, amazing black woman who runs Cassava Republic, um, she told me all the time, she said, who lives in your head? Who's colonized your mind? If you pick kids today and you tell them, write or draw an entrepreneur, mm. they're likely going to write the names of white men. Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg. Why, why do white men live in our heads all the time? Mm. We need to decolonize our minds. And that was part of why I wrote this book, so that I mm. want our young brothers and young sisters, when someone asks them about these incredible entrepreneurs, I want them to be able to say, see Azusa in South Africa, Marcus Gora, Farida Bedwi. I want them to have images of black men and black women. Mm as these symbols of success, as these entrepreneurial icons, because when they can see themselves in these icons of success, when they can see themselves in these models of success, it's easier to draw that bridge to say, I can aspire to be that too. Mm. Absolutely, and that's very important, right? Because if you don't have that, then the system is going to be the system. And we already know those self-limiting beliefs are built into the system, right? So by having a wonderful thing like this, this is a, this is a wonderful resource, literally, right? So this is past, present, future, all in one book, which I, I absolutely love and appreciate. Absolutely. Yeah, and if I may, first and foremost, when you were at Petty, you were a bad boy. Now... Fact. I can say you are a bad man. You are a bad man, brother. I just want you to know that. And um, first and foremost, you got a forward written by Henry Louis Gates Jr. out here. And um, when I read the forward, I'm like, that is Sangu to a T. And indulge me for a minute, brother. We got to give you your flowers while you're here. I want to read a piece. I just want to read yeah, a piece. Please. All right. So here we go. As a student at Harvard, Sangu Delhi, the author of this book, was one of the top two undergraduate students our department has ever produced. I do not exaggerate Sangu's merits. He is the rarest of young people, filled not only with formidable intelligence, but also with fire and compassion, including a tremendous will to make difference in his communities, to make a difference in his communities. First and foremost, I think that alone encapsulates you and so, so like, it's so clear. And I think all the stuff that just came out today that you shared with the people is exactly what Skip Gates wrote, 100%. And I share it. I feel the same way, brother. I hope you know you are loved. I hope you know you are, you are doing the damn thing. And I'm proud to call you brother. I really am. Absolutely. A constant inspiration. So thank you, sir, for joining us once again. At uh, was it eleven thirty now? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, brothers. Thank you so much. It was, 
it was it was really a, a it's a it's a privilege it's so wonderful to connect with all of you and um thank you thank you so much for having me yes sir yes sir it's good to see you man i don't know if you got a chance to see the shirt i love it i yeah, love my yeah, yeah. love you too <laughs> <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. You still with us, Josh? They trying to take you away? You over there buffering. Josh out here buffering. Josh is in a sunken radio place. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, Josh, come back. <laughs> no, nah, I don't I don't think I can hear y'all. Oh, you can't hear no. us? Let's 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 talk more stuff about Josh. <laughs> can you hear us now? Wow. <laughs> well, you know, you know what, guys? Keep, keep, keep on the conversation. I'm just gonna be on on the sidelines here. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Nah, man. This was this was this was life filling, life giving. Really appreciate it. Great. And where right. where 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 do folks get the book? Tell people where they can get your book. And, um, it's it's on Amazon. It's uh, available physical, electronic. Um, yeah, they can just go to Amazon and, and get a copy. And it came quickly. It came quickly. So I'm appreciative. I can't wait to dig in. Um, you know, I might have to get a couple of copies for the office, you know, make sure that appreciate we have that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And Josh keeps running away. Yeah. <laughs> All Keep right. running away. Yeah, brother. Well, we appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Love to you and the fam. Love to you all. Speak soon. All right. All right, Brother Sangu. Appreciate it. So, Brother Mix, thank you once again. Everyone in the live comments, thank you once again. This is a very inspirational evening. I feel like we all have homework to do. Yes. <laughs> Get your copy. So, yeah.